Good morning. It is uh, great to see you today, and uh, I am just excited to be able to, no, I'm ecstatic to be able to bring you the Word of God today. It never ceases to amaze me that God gives me the honor and privilege of doing something that I love to do so much, and um, I am just grateful to Him for that. So let me pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts today through His Word. So Father God, thank you so much for not leaving us uh, without a clue here on this planet, but Lord, your word guides us. Lord, it's our nourishment for our souls, and uh, we pray, Lord, that as we come together today, that our hearts would be soft, and that the, the seed of the word of God would find soft soil, that it would take root and bear fruit in our lives. And uh, I offer this prayer in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you have a Bible with you or a device, you can go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. We're starting a new series, and it's titled Higher Ground. It's an exploration of Jesus' very famous Sermon on the Mount, which he delivered from a mountainside, thus higher ground. Okay? That's where that comes from. I said it's a new series, but it's also a continuation of our study in the book of Matthew that we began together back at Christmas time, we took a break from it for our Love Works series and also for Palm Sunday and Easter weekend, but now we're going to resume this fascinating look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, King Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But before we dive into our passage for today, I'd like us to do what I like to do at the outset of a series and kind of step back and take, um, take out the wide angle lens and get a broader view uh, for a few moments, of the unique features of Matthew's gospel account of the life of Jesus, Matthew's biography of Jesus' life. Let me say a few things about that, and oh, yeah, take the study guide out of your worship folder so you can uh, keep tracking with me this morning. Matthew, we discovered, aims to portray Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king who comes in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And because of that, we've been discovering that Matthew draws heavily on the Old Testament, and he quotes from it a lot. And in doing that, Matthew reveals some interesting and intriguing parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. I think Matthew believed that Jesus came to be the true and the better Israel. So think about some of the parallels or similarities that Matthew presents in his gospel. Like Israel, Jesus was led down to Egypt. Like Israel, Jesus was later called out of Egypt and back to the land of Palestine. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea and later the Jordan River, so Jesus was led into the waters of the Jordan at his baptism. Just like Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was tested in the, the desert for 40 days. Like Israel, Jesus' testing included the temptation to doubt the goodness of God and complain about his lack of provision. Unlike Israel, Jesus resisted his set of temptations and he didn't cave in to the desire to complain against God. So what do you think? Are all those parallels just coincidences? I don't think so, in part because as you study it, those parallels continue throughout the life of Jesus. Think about the fact that Jesus would choose 12 disciples that mirrored the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Or think about the fact that Jesus described himself as the true vine and the true light. Images that stand in contrast to 
Old Testament descriptions of Israel. So I believe that Matthew believed that Jesus was the true and better Israel come to succeed where Israel had failed in God's plan. So now we come to chapter 5 where Matthew reports that Jesus ascends up onto a mountain where he would expand upon God's law in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm wondering, do you think there's another parallel here? Could it be that Matthew is hearkening back to that great leader of Israel, Moses? Is Matthew now portraying Jesus as the true and better Moses? Well, you can be the judge of that, but I see a parallel here between Moses ascending Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, and now Jesus ascending a mountain not to receive it, but to reinforce it and reinterpret it and intensify its demands. So let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. Arguably Jesus' most famous famous sermon or teaching or perhaps collection of teachings. Scholars agree that the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, generally speaking, is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And those terms are used interchangeably. In this sermon, Jesus was speaking to a crowd of religious people about the entrance requirements for God's kingdom, how to get in, as well as what a life lived under the the gracious rule of God looks like. My understanding, the main purpose of the sermon, as I said last weekend, is to contrast two ways that people seek to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Two vastly different approaches for coming to God, gaining his favor, and being accepted by him. And so in this sermon, we find lots of twos, lots of pairs, two gates, two roads, two trees, two builders, two foundations, etc. Now, you need to know that the Sermon on the Mount has historically been interpreted in a variety of different ways. In fact, one notable scholar actually found 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. And we don't have time to delve into all of those right now, obviously, but you should know it's impossible to preach a series on the Sermon on the Mount, apart from having a particular set of lenses through which to view it. And so for me, as I've studied this, I've discovered that I land pretty much where Martin Luther landed. So I feel like I've been in pretty good company with a a spiritual heavyweight like that guy. Luther was ticked off that the people of his day had turned the sermon into something that it was never intended to be. And he believed that behind those efforts to twist The point of the Sermon on the Mount was the devil himself. In fact, he wrote this in his introduction to his commentary on it. Here's what he wrote. The infernal Satan has not found a single text in the scripture which he has more shamefully perverted and made more error and false doctrine out of than just this one, which was by Christ himself ordered and appointed to neutralize false doctrine. This we may call a masterpiece of the devil. Now, Luther said this because he found in his day two extreme interpretations of this sermon that he believed were both in error. On the one hand, many Catholic people that Luther knew taught that the various commands in this sermon were just really meant to be helpful suggestions, practical advice for those few ambitious Christians who really wanted to grow in their Christian life. This view contended that if you took the commands literally turn the other cheek, those sorts of things, that they would be too hard to obey. 
So in this view, Jesus must have meant for them to simply be helpful advice for Christians who wanted to get to the next level of their spiritual growth. Well, this, of course, was mixing some grace in with the law to make it easier to obey, which did not set well with dear Martin. This view also let some people off the hook, because if they weren't really those who were motivated to grow spiritually, they kind of got a pass. Well, that was on the one extreme view. On the other hand, there were people in his day called the Anabaptists, and they were very literal people who taught and believed that people had to obey all of these commands in order to be accepted by Christ and be a good Christian. They acknowledged, these Anabaptists did, that the bar was extremely high, very high, but instead of despairing of that and fully embracing the grace plan, they just kept pushing people to try harder and try harder to obey all of these commands in order to please God, and basically creating a performance-based approach to Christianity, which didn't sound much like good news at all. So Luther countered both of these extreme views. He believed, as I do, that the Sermon on the Mount was intended to put on display the extremely high demands of the law of God so as to drive listeners to despair of ever being able to keep it so that they would seek out another plan for being accepted by God, another righteousness other than their own efforts. Enter the gospel, the grace plan. Now this is not to say that, Luther's, that in Luther's view the Sermon on the Mount has no application for Christians, no. He believed that the sermon was a guide for Christian behavior then, and I believe now, but with the underlying assurance that it's not how well we do it living up to it that determines our standing with God. So I think Luther was spot on in his interpretation. And uh, he and I are in good company, by the way, as I studied this down through the years. And so as I said on Easter, I believe that Jesus' intent in the Sermon on the Mount was to hold up the law of God and intensify its commands. You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, he who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. That's called intensifying the demands of the law of God. And he did that so that people who were clinging to a performance-based plan for being accepted by God would look for another plan. Another plan, a better plan. And so in this teaching, Jesus is poking huge gaping holes in the religion of human achievement while also hinting at the plan of grace, whereby righteousness could be received as a gift and not earned as a wage. So this leads us to how he opens this famous sermon, and, and it's a passage that we often refer to as the what? The Beatitudes. That's how the Sermon on the Mount opens, with the Beatitudes. Now, don't you all do that, okay, you know? All right. Beatitude, the word beatitude is taken from the Latin word for happiness or blessedness. The beatitudes are pronouncements of blessing upon the happy people who are in the kingdom of God. Jesus began the beatitudes by saying, blessed are those, blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are they. And that word blessed or blessed is the Greek word makarios. So would you say that with me? Makarios, and now you know a little Greek here today. And that word means fortunate, well-off, happy, divinely favored, enviable, spiritually prosperous. It, it describes a, 
a joy that is self-contained and not based on circumstances. Now, you've heard this statement before, right? Happiness is based on happenings, but joy is based on Jesus. This idea of blessedness, makarios, has to do with that joy that's based on a close relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not based on how pleasant your circumstances happen to be going at the time. And it's interesting that the grammar in the original language reads like this. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. It's, a, it's an exclamation celebrating the unassailable joy that comes from living under the gracious reign of God. Oh, the blessedness. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. So as we get into this, I'm going to read all of the Beatitudes, but for today we're going to look at just one, just the first one. We'll pick up the pace a little bit next weekend so we don't, you know, we get this done before Jesus comes back. But um, I believe the first one is foundational for all the rest. So in Matthew 5, here's how Matthew sets it up. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those are the Beatitudes. It's good stuff, isn't it? You can tell there's more there. I mean, there's, there's a lot in there. Notice that there are eight Beatitudes that are worded the same way. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. Verse 11 could be viewed as a ninth Beatitude, but it's worded a little differently. Blessed are you, and so I believe it's really just an expansion of verse 10. Take note that the first and the last one share an identical blessing. Both the poor in spirit and the persecuted are blessed, it says, For theirs is the, what does it say? Kingdom of heaven. The other six beatitudes that are sandwiched in between those two all have different promises attached to them. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall obtain mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called the sons of God. You see that? All of those are promises for the future But the first and last Beatitudes each contain a statement of fact that relates to the present. The disciples are assured that theirs is the kingdom of heaven right now, present tense. So you say, well, what's the significance of that, of the way this is put together? Well, John Piper tells us there are at least two implications. First, the six promises represent the various blessings of the kingdom. By sandwiching the six promises in between those two assurances, Jesus is saying that these are blessings that you can count on if you're in the kingdom of God. Kingdom citizens can expect to experience all of those wonderful blessings 
in some measure in this life and in full measure in the age to come. That's the first implication. And the second implication is that this seems to be Jesus' way of telling us that the kingdom of God is both present and future. And we've talked about this before, haven't we, in our series last fall on the kingdom. It is, it is both here now, as Pastor Jay just said a few moments ago, and it's not yet here fully. It's still coming. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. So it's here but not fully here. Now, let's look again at this first beatitude. Say it aloud with me in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, at first glance, that could sound kind of strange to someone's ears. Blessed are the poor? Let's dig a little deeper. The Greek language in which this was written had two words for poor. Two words. The first word was penes. Penes. Penes describes the kind of poverty that requires daily labor to earn a living. Panace describes someone who doesn't have this big savings account of hundreds of thousands of dollars that they can live off, no big stockpiles of resources. If they want to eat, they have to work every day. And in that regard, maybe a number of us might be panace in that definition. We would say the panace person lives from hand to mouth, from payday to payday, paycheck to paycheck. They have to work in order to eat. That's panace. But the Greeks had a second word, patokos. And this word is different. This is the kind of poverty that would be manifested in the life of a beggar. Tokos has to do with someone who was so poverty-stricken that they had nothing but the rags they were wearing. It's not that they didn't work, it's that they were unable to work. Um, A crippled person, for example, or a blind person would be a Patokos kind of poor person, not able to work. And it's interesting, the word itself has the the idea, carries with it the idea of kind of crouching and and cowering in shame. Like having to beg, but that's not where the person wants to be, but that's the, the station in life they find themselves in. That kind of poor, shrinking back from something or someone. Bankrupt, completely helpless, powerless, no resources, no connections, totally dependent upon other people's gifts if they're going to even survive. So you see the difference between penes and patokas? And which word do you think Jesus uses in this first beatitude? Blessed are the patokas, the totally bankrupt, destitute, helpless. When I hear about that kind of poverty, my mind goes back to um, a time I grew up on the West Coast. And my family would take trips down to L.A. for sporting events and so forth. And I remember a time when my dad took us by Skid Row. And I was a young kid. I had never seen such poverty and such homelessness up to that point in my life. I mean, there were men sleeping in cardboard boxes on the sidewalks there. And then during the day, they would be crouching down on the sidewalks, holding out a little tin cup and just motioning to passersby, please, please, just a few coins, please. I didn't have any categories in my mind or words to describe that kind of poverty. I saw it again in Manhattan when I was on a summer missions team as a college student. People, lots of people with nowhere to go, no place to live, nothing to eat, nothing in their pockets, shoulders kind of 
slumped down, faces drawn, eyes hollow. We'd walk around and share the gospel all day, every day with people, but that was hard to see, that kind of poverty. I saw it again in India a few years ago, in Mumbai and in other places, destitute people with absolutely nothing, sleeping under bridges. I saw it again in Africa when I went there with our team, people with nothing, zero resources, dressed in rags, looking helpless and hopeless. That's patokos, poverty. And that's the word that Jesus used here. Blessed are those who are completely destitute, totally dependent on others. But notice, he's not talking about material poverty, is he? He's not saying blessed are the poor. If that were the case, then we would be doing the poor a disservice by helping them. We would be robbing them of blessing if we were helping them and resourcing them. He didn't say blessed are the poor. He said blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually destitute. He's saying this, God gives the blessing of entrance into his kingdom to those who realize they have nothing of value to offer God. They have nothing to bring to the table. They're totally helpless before God, possessing nothing of value to offer in exchange for his favor. You've heard the phrase, I got nothing, or the derivative, I ain't got nothing. <laughs> That's what it's talking about when it, before God. The Patokos person, the person who's poor in spirit is saying, God, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing that, that's going to impress you. I, I got nothing to offer you that can leverage, you know, your favor towards me. I got nothing. Totally bankrupt, spiritually speaking, completely dependent, and they know it. They realize it. That's Jesus' point. And so you could restate this first beatitude like this. Blessed are those who are totally dependent upon God. Blessed are the completely dependent upon God. You know, when Jesus spoke those words, he was looking out at a crowd of people who, by and large, were full of pride and banking on their good works to earn God's favor. And I think this must have shook them up a little bit. Jesus looking at them and saying, Oh, how happy are the spiritually destitute totally dependent upon God, who have nothing and can earn nothing. Those are the ones that God blesses. I think it is a little shocking to them and to us. It cuts against the grain, doesn't it, of everything that our culture assumes to be true. So much for God helps those who help themselves. This is God helps those who can't help themselves. So here's another instance of the upside-down kingdom of God where Jesus turns the valued system of this world on its head and declares that God's kingdom operates by a completely different set of principles. Think about it. What does our world say? How would our world, our culture, form this first beatitude? Blessed are the self-reliant. Blessed are the self-sufficient. Blessed are the independent who don't need others. Blessed are the highly resourced and well-connected people. That's what our world says, right? We need to understand that God has established a totally different operating system from the kingdom of this world. Humbleness of heart, brokenness, contriteness of spirit, 
lowliness, utter dependence upon God. These are attributes that are often despised in our world, but highly esteemed and blessed by God. Now, understand that Jesus, when he said this, was not introducing like a brand new thought. I mean, this theme runs all throughout the scriptures. Let me just from the Old Testament, some examples. Here's God speaking, Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The psalmist wrote this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Poor in heart. Psalm 51, the psalm of confession, David wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen to this one from Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. But then listen, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Our world says, blessed are those who assert themselves. Blessed are the confident and self-reliant. Happy are those who leverage their resources to get what they want. That's how to get ahead in this world. And in the world system, it often is, right? Let's be honest. That's how the world system, the kingdom of this world works. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus is not talking about how to get ahead in the world system. He's talking about how to approach God. And for that, it's all about the attitude of the heart. God blesses the poor in spirit. People who have been humbled enough to know they are totally destitute spiritually. They got nothing to offer God. They come with their arms extended and hands out saying, please God, please, please God, if, if you don't come to my aid, if you don't give me anything, I'll have nothing. Blessed are the patokas. You know, when people bring their smug self-sufficiency into their relationship with God, it results not in blessing, but in cursing. Not in blessed are you, but woe to you. You see, the opposite of being poor in spirit is being spiritually self-reliant, self-sufficient. I've been this way at times in my life. The spiritually self-reliant person thinks to himself thoughts like, well now, God should be glad to have someone like me on his team, wearing his uniform. With me on his team, God's headed for the playoffs. No doubt God is super impressed by my performance, putting those shots in and dishing out those assists. With me tearing it up out on the floor, the others are going to have to continue to ride the bench because we're going all the way, me and God. What a great team God and I make. You know what the truth is? The truth is there is no one dead or alive whom God would be lucky to have on his team. There is nothing in any human to commend themselves to God. In that sense, all humans are poor in spirit and spiritually bankrupt, but the people Jesus is referring to here know it and realize it and admit it and own it. And that realization is reflected in their attitude and their outlook and their disposition. Now, 
when someone is spiritually smug and self-reliant, what's the, what's the antidote to that? What's the remedy for that? Repentance, right? A change of mind, a change of heart leading to a change of life. Repentance. But you know what? Repentance too comes from God. We can't even work up repentance on our own. We can't manufacture it. It's a gift of God. But when the Lord brings a person to that point, that point of repentance, they start to see themselves and their life through a different lens. They start to, co- to evaluate their life not based on comparison with this person, my coworker, or my neighbor who I'm better than, or this person or that person. They're not comparing themselves like this anymore. They start to see themselves in relationship to God. And when they see that, they say, they assess their lives like Isaiah did. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. Not just our sins, our righteousness. You want a startling statement? I think it was Piper that said this. There is enough evil in my best deed on my best day to damn me to hell forever. Chew on that for a while. God is holier than we thought. Let me summarize our understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. It's having a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It's having a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. Having an awareness of our moral uncleanness in comparison to him. It's having a sense of unworthiness before God and a sense that if there's going to be any joy, any good thing coming into my life, it's going to be because of God. Now, can I say this to you as a pastor? The Lord knows how to get you there. (laughs) Oh, man. The Lord knows how to get his people to patokos, to spiritual destitution. He does. He knows, doesn't he? He knows how to apply the right amount of pressure at just the right time in just the right area of your life for just the right duration to bring you to your knees where you say, I got nothing. (laughs) I must not be sovereign over my life. Here, I thought I was the king of my own kingdom. I thought people should submit and serve me. But I'm not sovereign over my life, God. You're showing me that very evidently these days through these circumstances that you have arranged and orchestrated. There have been seasons in my life where the way my circumstances were mounting up around me felt orchestrated. Like someone's behind this. (laughs) And it was not pleasant at the time, but looking back on it now, I see it was the mercy of God crushing me, bringing to my knees so that I would be poor in spirit and reach out to God. And that's what he wanted to bless. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what I'm talking about? God knows how and when to crush us so that we will run to him in utter dependence, hands now open instead of clenched in defiance. You see, being poor in spirit is not something you can work up either. It's an effect of the grace of God operating in your life and in mine. God does this. God does this. And you know what? Sometimes the avenue of God's grace is another person. Yeah. A coworker, or a person in your small group or a cousin or a parent or someone in the church that you know who has this, whose life manifests this quality and you see that in them and you see God's blessing and you go, God, I want that. What they've got, I want that. Bring that to me, Lord. 
it has an appealing, it's attractive to me, what I see in that guy or what I see in that gal, and, and, and your blessing is all over them. I really want that, God. That's a beautiful thing. God, God will meet you at that point, won't he? You know, there were people in the Bible who were brought to this point of being poor in spirit, Patokos. I think of Jacob, he was one. After wrestling with God all night, by the way, note to self, wrestling with God, it's not going to go well. I mean, just <laughs> think about that. He was left broken and limping, a limp that stayed with him the rest of his life. And he finally admitted this, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servants. Patokas. I think of Job, another man, after challenging God's character, kind of dueling with God, having it out with God in his ways, the Lord reminded him in no uncertain terms who it is who runs the universe. And Job was humbled, and he finally got to the point where he said this, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, 5 and 6. Isaiah was another who God brought to that point. After being given a vision of God in all of his glory and all of his holiness, he cried out what? Woe is me, for I am undone. You know what the word means? Disintegrating God in your presence. I'm coming apart at the seams. Because I, I can't even be near you. But maybe the clearest portrait of someone who was poor in spirit is a man that Jesus talked about in a story that he told. A tax collector or sometimes referred to as a publican. It's an incredible story. Jesus told it. It's recorded in Luke 18. Let me read it for you. And he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, looked down on other people. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Man, talk about someone on the performance plan. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus' commentary, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a powerful picture of being poor in spirit. God! I'm a sinful man. I desperately need your mercy, God. Please! God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I prayed that prayer. I prayed it on the night of my conversion. I remember it as if it was yesterday. God showed me my sin, my pride, my arrogance, my self-righteousness, my ungratefulness, my lust, my anger. I saw it, and with tears streaming down my face, I said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, as an 18-year-old guy. But you know what? I've prayed that prayer a hundred times since then. I prayed it this week. Not to be saved all over again. My sins are pardoned, past, present, and future. But because God, my flesh wants to 
it hangs around, doesn't it? And it wants to seize control again and, and tells me that I'm the king again of my own kingdom. And when God shows me that, I just like, God, again, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And when the grace of God brings me to that point of brokenness before him, every time, every time, the Lord meets me with his mercy in that moment. Thank God for that. And don't miss the outcome of that story again, the two, the two guys. What does it say? This man, this broken, patokos, poor in spirit man, went down to his house justified. And that's a term for being declared righteous before God, being accepted by him, being on his way to heaven to live with God forever. That's exactly what Jesus stated in the first beatitude, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the blessing. Heaven is for the poor in spirit. Only the poor in spirit. I hope you see the paradox in this. God takes those who come to him poor in spirit and he declares them to be citizens of heaven and makes them rich. The poor in spirit here on the earth become rich in spirit in heaven. What a blessing. What good fortune. The destitute will be made wealthy beyond imagination. And this incredible blessing is reserved for those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God. Thank God for this first beatitude. Amen? One last thought for today. What makes this even possible? On what basis can someone's spiritual poverty here be turned into spiritual riches in heaven? Jesus only hints at the answer in this Sermon on the Mount. He will fully develop it later in his three years of ministry. But listen to Paul's writing some years later where he makes it abundantly clear how this can happen. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. For you know, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became patokos. That's the word. Destitute. Spiritually bankrupt so that you by his patokas might become rich what is he saying simply this those who are poor in spirit can become rich in god because the extremely wealthy son of that god gave up his riches and became poor how ironic is that spiritually poor people on earth can become spiritually rich citizens of heaven because a spiritually rich man in heaven gave it all up to become spiritually destitute down here on the earth. You say, well, how did Jesus become Patokos, spiritually bankrupt? Well, in another place, Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched, but he made himself what? Nothing. That's poor in spirit. He emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he put on a robe of human flesh, even though he was God, and being found in human form, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, it was on the cross that Jesus became spiritually bankrupt and destitute. 
He'd already given up all claim to his heavenly rights, but now hanging on the cross, he had nothing at all to offer the Father. (laughs) Think about it. On the cross, instead of reveling in his Father's approval and pleasure like he had at his baptism, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, now he finds the Father turning away from him, and he feels abandoned, right? My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? You say, why did that happen? Well, Martin Luther put it this way. Jesus on the cross became the most despicable human being of all time, literally covered by the sins of the world. And a holy God had to turn away. Talk about being poor in spirit. Jesus was spiritually destitute, bankrupt, not having any sin of his own, but taking in his body the full brunt of God's holy wrath against the sins of the world, our sins caused him to be spiritually bankrupt. Jesus became patokos, completely dependent upon God, and he did it for our sake, and I say thank God for Jesus. He's our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our Messiah, and he's our supreme example. Even in this, if anyone was poor in spirit, it was Jesus. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Did Jesus get blessed? Oh, yeah. That passage goes on to say, therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus humbled himself, became patokos, poor in spirit. God exalted him to the highest place. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due time. Doesn't the Bible say that? Yeah. And so, first beatitude, one more time. Let's say it aloud together, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I say this first one is foundational because of this. It's only the poor in spirit who are granted citizenship in the kingdom of God who gain entrance into heaven. It's only those who recognize their complete helplessness before God who are on the narrow road. It's only those. That's why there's few. It's only those who are building their life on the rock-solid foundation. To put it plainly, these are the saved people, the saved ones, the citizens of God's kingdom. The poor in spirit heart attitude describes them at their point of conversion to Christ And it continues to describe them as they walk and live out the life of faith the remainder of their days. Humble, contrite, broken before the Lord. I love how the old hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it in the third verse. I think I printed it out there for you. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Isn't that good? I come empty-handed. I got nothing, God. I'm just clinging on to that cross of Jesus Christ. That's my only hope of being blessed by you. You know, it occurs to me that um, we all go through our lives, we're walking through our lives every day, and, and maybe you're in a situation like I've been in a number of times where the circumstances of your life seem to be mounting up against you, or maybe you feel like you're being piled on. And it occurs to me to look at you today and say, maybe, maybe, maybe God is at work producing this patokos of spirit in you. 
And yours is to say, yes, Lord, and yield to Christ. Yield to the, the hand of the potter who's molding and shaping and forming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of poor in spirit. I thought about this. How can we express this kind of attitude that God blesses? How does it manifest itself? How does it come out? In probably a variety of ways, but I'm thinking of two, and I'll finish with these. I think it manifests itself by asking God for mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I prayed that the night I got saved. I prayed it this morning. I'll pray it tomorrow morning. (laughs) Asking God for mercy. If you're an unbeliever here today, maybe you came last weekend for Easter and I encourage you to come back and learn about this Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I encourage you to come humbly before the Lord and say that to him from your heart. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the grace plan. That's rejecting the performance plan, saying, I I got nothing. I I could never be good enough for God. I got to have your mercy, Lord, and he will save you in an instant. You'll become a follower of Jesus Christ. For believers... You can ask God for his mercy to sustain you and strengthen you every day. God, I need your mercy today. Asking God for his mercy. And a second, I think, outworking or manifestation of this is asking others for prayer. Isn't that true? How do you express poor in spirit? Well, I think asking God for mercy and then asking brothers and sisters to pray for you. That's why we do Brothers Keeper Prayer every week here. That's why we have prayer partners available to pray with you at the end of our time together. That's why we have small groups. One of the reasons we have small groups is so you can gather together and support each other through prayer. Ask God for his mercy and ask other people to pray for you. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Jesus, for many of us, Jesus is becoming our everything. Our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our King, our example. Thank you so much for these words. Just this simple phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, there are people in this room today who needed to know that that is true. Lord, if there are those who have come to faith, maybe even during the week as they've thought about what they heard last weekend, or even today, I pray that you give them the courage to come and just confess their faith to one of our prayer partners this morning, just just to come and say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior now. (laughs) That would be a glorious thing. Lord, for believers, for Christians, for my brothers and sisters in this family, Lord, I pray that you would grant us your grace to be poor in spirit, to humble ourselves before you, maintain that attitude of humble dependence upon you every day. Lord, some of us are going through some difficult, difficult circumstances. Thinking about some of the folks who came for prayer at the earlier hour. And Lord, it's so obvious that uh, you are working in the hearts of your children to bring about humility and brokenness. And in that dependence, you will meet them at their point of need, Lord, in a special way. And I pray that you would continue to do that because you are faithful love you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We do have some of our prayer partners available to pray with you about whatever is going on in your life. Maybe 
God's working in your life to strip away some of that self-sufficiency. They'd love to pray with you about that. Maybe you need physical healing in your body and you'd love to be prayed for. These folks would, would welcome that opportunity as well. You can come and be prayed for about anything that's in your heart. So let's stand together and we're going to worship the Lord and pray together.